The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Hey, come here. Come here. Let's go. Let's go worship other gods. This line in Parshat Re'eh has always struck me as particularly vivid. I can almost hear the voice of the tempter whispering like a drug dealer on the corner. Hey, hey, you come over here. I've got, I got something you should try. But who is this tempter? Who, who is it that wants to lure you away to idolatry? Is it a wicked witch or a foreign priest looking for new recruits? No, nothing so sinister. The verses that describe this case, known in Jewish law as the mesit, or the enticer, give several examples of potential enticers. If your brother, your own mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your neighbor who's just like you, entices you, yesitcha, in secret, vaseter, saying, come, let us go worship other gods. Whom neither you nor your ancestors have known, from among the gods of the peoples around you, near and far, from one end of the earth to the other, do not assent or listen to them. So you see, this is a family matter. Your brother, your spouse, your closest friend, someone you know well, someone you love, is trying to peel you away from the faith. The case of the Mesit is defined in the legal codes specifically as an instance of one Jew trying to bring another Jew to worship foreign gods. That is, writes Rabbi Yitzchak Kabarbanel, that's precisely what makes the offer so difficult to refuse. Because, he says, it's due to the brotherhood and the closeness between them, that they will listen to one another and take advice from one another and each believe what the other says. This family feeling, then, makes us particularly vulnerable to temptation. So the Torah has to warn us to always be on guard against idolatry, even with those closest to us. And that seems to be the point of this extended cautionary against enticement. But a careful look at Rashi's comments on the verse points us in a different direction. He begins with a concern with the precise meaning of the word, Hebrew word mesit, which so far I've translated as enticing, something like alluring or seductive. But Rashi's definition is slightly more aggressive. En hasata ela garui. This enticing is actually a provoking. Provoking. 
Rashi seems to be suggesting that the mesit is not just someone who invites you to do what they do, but someone who's deliberately trying to get you to do something wrong. And then Rashi gives an example, and it's a surprising one, given the case that we've been discussing so far. As it says, if the Lord has provoked you against me, Imashem hesitchavi, the context here is the future king, David, protesting against Saul's ongoing pursuit of him. He can't understand why King Saul would persecute him so. Notably, David also sees his exile as an abandonment from God. Ki gershuni hayom, because they've driven me out today so that I cannot have a share in the Lord's possession, but I am told, go and worship other gods. So there's the parallel between this passage and the case of the Mesit, the enticer in Deuteronomy. And that's surely part of why the brilliant Rashi chooses this passage, of all the examples of provocation in the Bible. And yet, in another sense, it's a rather strange example. Because who's the Mesit in this instant? Who's the provocateur? It's God. Saul is pursuing David, but it is the Lord, apparently, who has provoked him to do so. Now, if we read that connection back into our warning against being tempted into idolatry, it almost seems as if Rashi's implying that God could be the one provoking us into abandoning our faith. But before we take that line of inquiry too far, maybe you're thinking that interpretation is just too much of a stretch. Just because Rashi's example of word usage for Mesit happens to come from a verse in which God is the subject, that does not mean that Rashi intends us to see God as a possible insider to idolatry. What would that even mean anyway? But, lo and behold, we have yet another example of the same kind of connection in the commentary of another medieval rabbi, this time Rashi's grandson, Shmuel ben Meir, the Rashbam. And here's his definition of enticement or provocation. Kol puranut hasata. Any advice whose consequence is disaster, we call hasata, enticement. Okay, and his first example? Vayomer Hashem el hasatan. The Lord said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a pure and righteous man who fears God and shuns evil. He still maintains his purity, but you have provoked me against him. Vatsitenivo, to destroy him for no good reason. Again, God is the one pushing an innocent man to turn against God. This time, however, darker forces are also involved. Satan is named as the provoker in this case. Now, it must be said, Jewish theology does not have the same conception of Satan as the ruler of the underworld and the enemy of God that we find in other religious traditions. Instead, in the book of Job, the figure of Satan, Satan, is an angel who acts as a kind of adversarial lawyer, arguing a case against the worth of humanity and trying to convince God to do away with us. But the point here is, neither Rashi nor the Rashbam, 
when they look at our case of the Mesit in Deuteronomy, neither of them turn first to examples of human beings who cause other human beings to lose their faith. Instead, each of them selects an example that points to greater forces at work in creating the enticements and provocations that sometimes lead us astray. Why did they leap so quickly to verses with such grand theological implications? It's difficult to draw out from their brief citations exactly what their larger philosophies of faith and human action were. But at a minimum, it seems that they were uneasy with the idea that our friends and families are the sole determiners of our belief systems and religious choices. Instead, they seem to be saying, if we really believe that there is only one true, all-powerful God, then, by definition, that God must also bear some responsibility for our faith, or lack thereof. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pitrouli by Hillel Tigue. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.